Hello there, my name is Alyssa Olenek. I am obsessed with all things exercise, science, outdoors, and growing an honest online business. I've spent the last 10 years studying exercise physiology, nutrition, and metabolism, and I'm here to help you move past the extremes in the fitness and wellness industries to have the real conversations we're not often willing to have with a sprinkle of sass and a whole lot of truth. I'm here to help you confidently live with me in the messy middle. Hello there, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Messy Middle Podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. I connected with Dr. Mackenzie Minier on Instagram, actually, and she is a professor at UGA, so she's a local, um, and we kind of found each other through the internet. Ironically, um, her partner had reached out to me before for something else, some question about gyms in the area, and I was like, I think I recognize you. So very small world here in Athens, Georgia, but she reached out to me, and she's a professor, and she has a lot of really good insight, and she wanted to come in here today and talk about a lot, the full spectrum of like how to have a healthy relationship within academia and how academia can be healthy and doesn't have to be an unhealthy, toxic space all the way to a topic that I think has come up a lot in the fitness industry the last year that I think this is like something that is important to have conversations on. And we've had a few in the podcast already, but I'm excited to have Dr. Mack as she goes by here today to talk about this because this is exactly what her research and work does with communication. And so she wants to talk about and touch on how race and discrimination can impact health and some of the myths around how those things actually impact health in our relationship with fitness and some of the things that we perceive versus the actual reality of it. So I think there's going to be a lot of really good takeaways from this podcast from everyone, from people who are health and fitness coaches, they're consumers in the industry. If you're a grad student, there's kind of a little bit of everything here today. So I'm super excited to have this conversation and that the crossroads of UGA Athens and the internet has brought Mackenzie here on the podcast today. So Mackenzie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks. I'm excited. I'm nervous, but I'm excited. No, this will be awesome. And I love, I love that small world connection thing of like, you know, you're a professor at UGA and I'm a measly doc student at UGA, but finding each other through the internet in Athens and like we're experiencing like the same environment and culture <laughs> in the same university at this point in time. So it's cool to be able to like kind of have those two different views on that. And so, um, cause Mackenzie has been through all the same things that I'm currently going through. So we'll talk about that a little bit here in a second. So first things first though, you gave us a lot of really good context in your background um, and the first thing we love to ask our guests is to go over their messy middle past or their messy middle journey. And so you talked a lot how, you know, you grew up multiracial and how that shaped your experiences and your life and then how that kind of transformed into the work that you do as an academic. So can you give our audience um, kind of your background story, like how you got to what you're doing today, your like your path from growing up to being Dr. Mack and what that means for the work that you're now doing? Yeah, definitely. Um, so... I grew up multiracial. My mom is black and my dad is white. Um, they are great, grew up in a great family, me and my brother. Um, but there is this kind of concept, especially like things have definitely changed, but um, especially, you know, growing up through the 90s and early 2000s, um, we definitely felt like this weird space between races that was really like hard to negotiate at times for me. Um, and you would get these kind of contradictory messages. So like, just for instance, like simple things like filling out a form, right? Like they'd be like, choose one, white or black. And it'd be like yeah. my little third grade self having like an identity crisis, like yeah. trying to like do my little like SAT prep or standardized testing or whatever. Um, and those things kind of like would come up really randomly and make you think or question or like feel pressured. Um, one time I was getting asthma, uh, tested at the doctor's office and she like the nurse was going through everything she's like okay like are you like what's your race and I was like okay I'm black and white she's like well you have to choose and I was like 
why? She was like, I ha- you just have to choose. Like, just pick one. And I was like, why don't you choose for me? And she was like, well, that's not my decision. And I was like, well, you're making it. Like, right? So just like those kinds of things yeah. growing up. Um, accompanied with like um, these kind of myths that if you are like multiracial, right, you're going to, um, it's your job to like solve racism. Like I remember in third grade, um, I had a friend who was also a multiracial and she was like, yeah, you know, like my mom was talking to me. She says, it's really important for us to be like examples of the future and what could happen if black and white people get together and we really have to showcase that. And I was like, yeah, at nine years old, that seems like a reasonable expectation. Like, I just learned long division. Now I'm going to, like, solve racial inequality. And That's crazy, too, because I think we've seen so much this last year of people highlighting, like, what, like, privilege actually looks like or how, like, these lived experiences of people who are, you know, not white Americans, yeah. right? And the things that, like, you – I would never think that at eighth grade or not eighth grade, when you're eight years old, like – that, that didn't even phase me. You know what I mean? Of yeah. course, like I grew up in a rural Pennsylvania town with people who drove tractors and were all white. Like that's, that's, that was my experience. So like it, I, I don't want to say I love that from the context that you went through that, but I love that as an example of things that like a lot of people don't actually even think about that like as a child at nine years old, you were like presented with these very heavy identity almost crisis <laughs> things and like very heavy stuff that your brain's probably not even ready to like – conceptualize yet and having to deal with that. So yeah, no, I just wanted to to highlight that because I think there's been so much conversation this year about like, okay, well, like this is the lived experience of so many people and you don't even think that that's even a thing, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, (coughs) and the good thing was I had like a really supportive family. Yeah. So even when those things came up, I always felt comfortable going to my parents. Um, And they were really like, they were really big on like making sure I felt included. So like growing up, they would give me like picture books and they'd be like, oh, like it's all white people. And they would literally like get crayons and markers and like fill it <laughs> in like different colors so I could see like all these shades of people to feel represented. Yeah. Um, so I was also like a pretty nerdy kid growing up, like, you know, loved reading, loved Harry Potter, like just loved being a student and that continued through like middle school and into high school where I was also like doing a lot of sports at the time, really negotiate. Like I was just always an athlete and not a very good one necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, But I definitely did like, you know, lacrosse and basketball and all of this. So when I was thinking though, as I grew up and like getting into what I wanted, like my career path to look like, um, like I played lacrosse for my first three years in college like club lacrosse I was mm-hmm. like, again like solidly middle average athlete um but then I started thinking like I've, I'd always wanted to be a journalist like I'm also like the nosiest person in the world always wanted to know <laughs> like what people were thinking I worked on my school paper and that was really fun but I was like okay it's senior year I'm not playing lacrosse anymore I'm not like giving up 10 to 20 hours of my week anymore I'm just gonna try everything I can find and see what I like so I like interned for a startup and then I had a professor who was looking for research assistants so I was like okay cool like I'll sign up and it was this really like beautiful cosmic moment that I got really lucky because I also signed up for a class at the time and it just said like special topics and I literally only signed up for it because it was at 11 a.m and I'm like that's a good time spot I don't have to wake up that early And it ended up being a class that professor like modeled into a grad class and it was tackling um, 
how undocumented immigrants negotiate their identity. I ended up working with undocumented students and hearing like their journey and working with him on the research team. And I was like, oh my gosh, like my nosiness doesn't come out to like the what, when and where aspects, which I was like fulfilling with journalism. But I was really more interested in like the how, like how are people thinking? How are they acting? How is, what is going on there? And that's what I loved and still like do love about research. Yeah. So no, both. I completely relate to that because I was, you know, an athlete turned nerd mm-hmm. and it was selfish at first. I was like, well, I want to know how to do this and I mm-hmm. want to know how it works. And I think I love that that perspective of people who love learning and love like research yeah. and being like, oh, it's the how that you're really interested in doing or even creating that information, which is insane to think that you can do, but that's what you do, right? In graduate school and as a researcher. So I like that. I like that, like figuring out that you actually want the how. That's cool. I've never heard anyone frame it that way, but I relate so deeply to that, right? Like, give me the data. Like, there's just so much, so many, like, there's just so much like knowledge in the world. Sometimes like thinking about it, like blows my mind. Like, mm-hmm. but it was just such a salient experience for me, like going through that and a really being able to reflect on the privilege I had mm-hmm. going to college and my ability to go to college. Right. Especially like working with these undocumented students and like, who would talk about, you know, we work all like in the summers I have to go like pick broccoli and I can't get any student aid. And I'm like, whoa, A, I'm so in such a privileged position, right? You can be like, I would mm-hmm. say, you can be empowered by certain privileged identities and disempowered simultaneously. But I definitely was like, wow, like that is just amazing how important education is. And I love this process and that. Um, and then I found out you could get funded to go to grad school, which I had no idea up until that nope. moment. No one tells you. And then you find yeah. out and your whole world opens up, right? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my gosh. So I was like, okay, like I'll take a year off after um, my undergraduate. I moved home and just started applying to grad schools. And when I was thinking about like the things I wanted to study and research, I like always knew it was related to family because I was just like, I am like so, so nerdily interested in all things like family like I love talking to parents I'm always like tell me about parenting tell me everything like how do you decide to do these things like I remember um I was taking a family communication class and I like went up to my dad and I was like hey dad like how did you guys decide like what morals and which values were important to pass down to like us and he was like oh yeah yeah, we, we talked and had this big conversation and I'm like oh really he's like no People don't <laughs> talk about those things explicitly. And I was like, oh, interesting. Cool, cool, cool. So, like, I knew it was family communication. I didn't really know, like, had ideas about how that might manifest later. And I ended up doing my master's thesis on adoption. Okay. And I really wanted to do transracial adoption because I had two um, of my uncles were adopting at that time and going through the foster care. And... I was just thinking, like, it must be so hard when you're a transracial family to talk about race, this really intense, complicated subject that you haven't had to reflect on in the same way, but now you have a child. And I'm like, wow, mm-hmm. that must be. Um, of course, I was a master's student with no money, yes. <laughs> begging people to take my survey. Um, so I didn't get that many transracial adoptees. So it became just more about general adoption mm-hmm. and how you negotiate meanings of family. And what really struck me at that time was like my mom, who's just 
so great. Read my thesis, which is like, <laughs> yeah, like I don't think I even read my thesis in complete like places. I was like, please, like I can't do this again. Yes. But she was like, it's interesting because she's, she said like a lot of those messages, like I asked them about like, you know, memorable messages about adoption as well as like what were intrusive interactions that happened and how did you mm-hmm. respond? And she said she actually like identified some of those messages within our family. She was like, oh yeah, I see this happening a lot. Like, because growing up, especially people would always assume like my dad wasn't with us. Yeah. When we'd like just go to a fast food restaurant, they take our orders and they like, he would come up and they were like, no, we're not ready for you yet. And we're like, no, he's related. Right. And my yeah. mom would say like growing up, she, everyone would assume she was my nanny. Interesting. And not, it's my favorite story is my dad got very confused when he first saw me. So my mom had to have like an emergency C-section. It was a very dramatic birth because of course of all people, I'm going to come out dramatically. You know what? You and me both. I was in an emergency <laughs> C-section seven days late with super in fact, I was like a NICU baby. So of course I get it. Dramatic birth story entrance makes sense. Yeah. And so they, they, they like bring me up and they're like, okay, like here's your daughter. And my dad's like, are you sure? And they're like, well, yeah, she's, he was like, she's just, she's very pale. Like the brown baby and they like held me up they're like no she's darker and he was like okay my bad yes this is mine thank you that's well my dad thought I was a boy so that makes <laughs> you feel any better he thought my umbilical cord was oh was me as a boy and he was so excited he had a son and they were like no 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 sir it's no, your no. daughter <laughs> he's like so close so cheers to confused dads I know bless his heart oh man that's sweet yeah. Um, but yeah, so like after doing that, I got more into this idea of like race in the family. Yeah. I think that's really interesting that your mom, well, very sweet that your mom read your thesis for one. I know. Bless anyone who reads anyone's full thesis. I don't even think my advisor read my full proposal. He probably just like went through and liked the parts that were important. Um, but I think that's super interesting that like you did this thesis on adoption, but then you found parallels and trends that mimicked what your mom had experienced raising you right a like a multiracial child and how that that identity within family is you know in multiple places at once that's super cool because you probably never intended on that being something that you know anyone picked up on no and so that was a really big like I went to get my PhD um in a university of Nebraska go Huskers and I really started focusing on race and ethnicity and the ways in which we learn what race and ethnicity means in the family. We decide, and also like the idea of family as a social institution. So I think we tend to think of our families are these private areas that are just us and, you know, the saying what happens in the family stays in the family when really like we have laws and we have policies that benefit certain types of families Mm -hmm. while also having He always does that. The second, like, he'll be, like, asleep all day, and then I'll, like, get on a meeting, and he's like, hello, I'm here. Yes. <laughs> but we have laws and discourses that, like, enable certain types of families to thrive while not allowing other family types to thrive. My, my go-to, I mean, a dark example, but, like, the first kind of example that can come to mind is, like, slavery. Like, you had people who could literally separate families, determine new ones. Mm-hmm just buying and selling. And that continued. We have like the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 that literally said like, we're not allowing any more people, men from China 
But also, if you were a white woman married to a Chinese man, you lost your American citizenship. And you would have to leave. Yeah. Until- I had I actually had never have oh, ever heard of that. I feel like I don't know any major law around history prior to like, I guess the last 150 years, I guess. Maybe that was 150 years ago, but. All the time I like will write something and learn something and I'll like do my research. I'm like, okay, we're going to take a lap, cool off for a little bit because this makes me like really mad. Yeah. Or even we didn't legalize or we, okay. So there were a lot of states that had anti-miscegenation laws, which means Mm -hmm. you could not marry someone of a different race or ethnicity. And that only got overturned in the Supreme Court in 1967. Yeah, I did know that one. Cause I actually was reading about that the other day as well. And I always am so shocked to think about how a lot of that stuff was in like literally my parents' generation. Oh, yeah. I mean, my grand and my parents were like toddlers. You know what I mean? Like they weren't regulating the law. Yeah. Um, but it's crazy to think that, that that's like in the same generation as like our parents, like not even grandparents, but like no, oh, yeah, parents when these things were finally actually like legally changing whether they socially change is another thing but legally actually like changing at that like top-down level I guess well yeah it was like when my parents got married in 1989 I believe so it was Mm -hmm. only it had only been legal like or it was always it had been legal in California for longer but it was only overturned like 20-ish years prior yeah and that's just like that's wild so like this idea that like oh family doesn't matter family is this private entity when in fact we get to determine who gets benefits based on whether you're a family right if you mm-hmm. get married you get huge tax breaks yes and we encourage like a lot of people who are single to get married because we think that will improve their life and we have incentives for people to do that so if you mm-hmm. are a single mother raising children you don't get the same tax benefits as a married couple right Mm-hmm. Regardless of the health of your relationship, the well-being of your relationship, all those things come down to the family and how we decide who gets to be a family. Yeah. I, I mean, thought. the tax the tax cuts for married couples, I'm about to like I'm about to propose to Regis. Like <laughs> I looked at that this last year, but I've never thought about that how that affects family dynamics cuz for us it's like it's not you know, it's not great to have to pay more money than you like than you personally don't want to, but it doesn't negatively impact us. Like we don't have children on, you know what I mean? Like yeah. but I've never even thought about that, how that affects single parents and how that incentivizes people to be married, where sometimes that's not even the best choice for many people. Um, yeah, that's crazy. I've never even thought about it like that. Such a great point. <laughs> Thanks. But so, and I like started looking at like how like you know race and ethnicity impacted the family, yeah. and how it's like both this like thing we discuss in the family, but also this bigger thing that gets to determine who gets to be a family. Yeah. Right. So um, as I was doing that, and of course, like I kept you know I got my dissertation done and got a job, but those were like my key questions, like mm-hmm. kind of guiding my research and guiding my research for where it is now. Yeah. So I love that. And I put in here, like, I love that, like, you kind of did the same thing as me as you pivoted from like full-time nerd (laughs) or like from athlete to full-time nerd and kind of accidentally found out that one, you get graduate school paid for, which is huge incentive. Um, But two, that you can get paid to ask questions. And if that pay is adequate enough for living is another conversation. But (laughs) 
Um, I love that though. And I love that parallel with like finding your way in research and asking mm-hmm. questions that are important to you. And I think all of us, regardless of what field we in, we usually have some personal tie to why we care about what we care about or why we're curious about what we're ca- curious about. Um, and so one of the things that you talked about that I think is really important to bring up is talking about, you know, you sparked to continue your work with communication and you did just highlight how you discovered that racism and discrimination were huge parts of the family dynamic, but also our health related issues. So can you speak more about how those things are tied to health and what we perceive as health or maybe like access to health? Um, and then why and how within the family where people might not think of these things as being a part of a family dynamic are also really important. Yeah, definitely. Um, So I frame like racism as a public health crisis. And I do this for a lot of different reasons. Um, And one of those reasons being that we have research that shows experiencing racism literally wears at your cells. Like it's not just going to impact your mental health. It's going to come back and impact your physical health. So when we talk about the importance of creating structures that um, aren't so divided along racial ethnic lines, like it comes down to people's well-being, mm-hmm. and it comes down to people's physical health and how they can access. Like in addition, um, and a big caveat, which I'm, I always do caveats because I think no, I'm the queen of research. disclaimers and caveats. Yeah. Please continue. I love it because then it 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 jumps to any anticipation thoughts that people are having. So yeah. go ahead, I support it. <laughs> um, So my caveat is we can talk about ethnic racial disparities, but the important way to look at it is not, is I think some people are like being part of X group is bad for your health in this way. And it's not being part of X group that is bad for your health. It is the way we have set up systems to like determine different groups is bad for Mm -hmm. your health. Mm -hmm. Right. Like one of the famous examples is like, we have pushed millions, millions, probably just, billions maybe of money into funding cardiovascular health and how important heart health is. And it turns out so many of those studies oversampled women or oversampled men that Mm -hmm. women present different signs of heart attacks that we have zero research and it's still like the number one leading cause of death for women. Yeah. And it's not just being a woman does not make you inherently at risk for cardiovascular disease. It's that our research and the systems we have created have led to a gap in access yeah. for those people. Yes. So when I talk no, about- No, I love that example t- too, because I think that's one so many people can relate to. Mm-hmm. And it's more like this just very general neutral trend of how people think about health. And like, we kind of all are familiar with that example, right? For some yeah. reason, we all know that, right? Like now that's commonly known for most people. Maybe maybe I'm I'm a little too biased because I work in cardiometabolic <laughs> health. But I think that that's one that people are like, oh yeah, like- okay, yeah, like there's different symptoms and research isn't applicable. And that's a really, really good example that I think a lot of people are familiar with. And yeah, and then when you break down women along ethnic racial lines, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Yes. Right? And again, that's not saying like being black leads to poor health. That's saying we have created systems and gaps in our knowledge that have put these people at risk. Yeah, no, I mean, there's... A lot of statistics on like, especially like maternal outcomes and well-being when in oh in black yeah. mothers. And I, my master's thesis was on um, uh, difference in like metabolic response to high fat meal and uh, black and Caucasian women. Um, and looking at that data, and a lot of it is like, you know, is it is it necessarily like the biology of being a different ethnicity or race, or is it you know, 
environmental, you know, all these things yeah. and like asking those questions the appropriate way and looking at, cause there are different outcomes in different populations and groups of people. And I think it's asking, is it because of X or is it because they are X? And I think that's a really yeah. great way of framing that because a lot of people don't think like that, well, at least when they're interpreting this stuff or when they're just making general observations in their day-to-day life. And they're like, well, this group's unhealthy. Well, are they unhealthy because they are, you know, biologically programmed to be that way? Or is there something else that's leading yeah. to that? I feel like nine times out of 10, it's something else. Yeah. And then we just miss that. So when we talk about like, when I talk about like, I'll talk about like health disparities, especially along ethnic racial lines. Yeah. Again, with that caveat, it is not that being black leads to higher rates of obesity. It is we have created cultures or we've created ideologies um, mm-hmm. in like, I define ideology. I have all my citations like written down if anyone wants them. <laughs> um but I look at ideology as the taken for granted assumptions that maintain certain power structures. So what things do we assume are normal that really aren't? So we might yeah. assume like, okay, like I remember in the early days of like the obesity epidemic. And I, I do that in quotes, not because obesity isn't important. It's yeah. because we never actually took the time to structure and understand like some of the root causes, especially if we think early of those discussions. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a lot of the... I mean, the whole entire, when even whether you include, you know, the health disparities along the racial lines within that or not, mm-hmm. um, I feel like there's a lot of arguments going on in the fitness and health and nutrition industry right now because no one's clearly defining any of it in a way that like we could, everyone's defining it a different way. I feel like for the most part, everyone's yelling the same thing at each other. You know what I mean? Like we're all yelling the same thing at each other, just our own emo- emotional interpretation of it, which is unfortunate because I think it leaves a lot of people actually like out of the conversation um, oh. or it doesn't help. It doesn't actually make it any better, but I agree. There was never like no initial, like clearly defining approach to it. It was just very, very oversimplified. Right. And now everyone's yeah. fighting about the nuance that comes with that. Yeah. And I remember, and I remember like growing up pretty um, right. Intensely during that era. Yeah. Of, like you know, we see everything and like, it was always very much right. Instead of being like, okay, what are these different frames? What's contributing to it? What are the socioeconomic levels to it? What are the mm-hmm. access to it? And like, it was all just like, oh, it's just a personal choice. Yeah. Right. Or instead of like, we, we look at like obesity is causing these things instead of like, what if it's poor mental health is causing that? Mm-hmm. What if instead of focusing on people's physical health first, we focused on their mental health and well-being, and then look for outcomes later? Yeah. And so when I talk about like ethnicity and race, looking at those nuances is really important as well as, okay, if you are someone who is experiencing a lot of racism, a lot of discrimination, both like explicitly or sometimes implicitly, right, that will impact your health and how you feel and your mental health. And that will in turn impact how healthy you feel in general, because I think a lot of times we look at health from this very physical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys do a really great job early on defining like health and well-being mm-hmm. so someone can be super fit physically but we also have to attend to their social emotional like needs and well-being and security mm-hmm. and I think a lot of the time things assumptions we have about health are very racialized in certain ways and again I'll like caveat is I'm I talk about whiteness and I don't mean this as like white people I'm not like pinpointing I'm not saying x y and z people are doing this I'm saying like whiteness as this concept that includes some expectations and some 
idea that white being white is the right way to be. And I think, mm-hmm. for example, in the early days, we talk about, like, I was talking about how I would open magazines. It would be all skinny white women. Yeah. And as someone who is not a skinny white woman, nor will ever be that, mm-hmm. right? Like, I felt like I always ended up trying to shrink myself mm-hmm. to fit those. And that both reinforced this idea of, like, okay, like, I have to be skinny to be healthy, but I also have to distance myself from my ethnic racial identity to hit this ideal. Of health. Yeah. And that harms, we see that everywhere with everyone in the fitness industry with regardless of who you are, like there's just that, that deep association of thin and almost unhealthy thinness sometimes with health. Like it's actually the reverse. I mean, so much, I've said this time and time again, that I mean, it's kind of like the Gwyneth Paltroism of fitness or wellness, right? Like that's the epitome. That's the pinnacle of this. Um, and it ends up actually like giving people non-health promoting advice. Like it actually is damaging people's health more than it is promoting it, but it looks shiny and pretty and it's painted as this beautiful picture of what health and wellness and well-being and fitness or whatever you want to call it is when it's actually like, well, on the outside, it, it, it looks how it's supposed to look, but on the inside, it's actually like not the best thing for you. The Messy Middle Podcast will be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed by what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. Oh my gosh, yes. And like, I think you had an episode about like taking the woo-woo out of wellness. Yes. Yeah, and I think it's like also important to consider how we can take the whiteness out of wellness and not Mm -hmm. in terms of like we need less white people. Like again, that's not a thing, but it's like, okay, like what Eurocentric assumptions do we have about health and wellness that if we change will actually benefit everyone regardless of race or ethnicity. Like I had a friend who was talking about how she didn't like her skin color and would literally like stay out of the sun to make sure she didn't get any darker and had this really problematic like ideology and relationship with her body image. Yeah. 
And like those things are just like so common. Like I like would always, you know, damage my hair to the point where it was fried just to get it straight. Mm-hmm. Like shrinking myself, following these bad things, needing to shop at certain places. And yes, that's problematic for everyone. And I know like a lot of women go through that. But I think especially for women of color, there's that added barrier of like, in what ways am I also now like distancing myself from my ethnic racial identity to do that and yeah. to give that ideal. Um, and I think that's where family plays this really, really big role. Mm-hmm. We also know like not only do we award families, you know, certain tax cuts, certain benefits for, for being certain types of family, that's mm-hmm. also where you tend to get your first relationship with your body image and your relationship with health and what that means right i think we all have like we there's a lot of studies in communication about memorable messages so those like kind of sticky messages that you remember hearing that kind of stick with you for the rest of your life yeah a lot of them first come from the family Mm -hmm. like if we think about like what does health mean it typically is like what were my family's ideas about health and how were those passed on to me yeah i mean you see that all the time with like you know, when we talk about, especially, you know, the messages that women get specifically, men get their own, which mm-hmm. we talked about in a few other episodes. If you guys are tuning in and you haven't caught it in the past, um, we talked with Dan. He's a powerlifter in RD on season two. And then also in the season coming out, either before or after this episode, I don't know yet. Um, we have Zach who talked a little bit about it. He he has changed his relationship with food and fitness since becoming a dad. So we do have a few episodes for you, for you dudes if that's something that you're looking for. But um, with women especially, I mean, you think about how many – people's messages of their body and beauty come from like their mom's relationship with their body and beauty and then like them kind of absorbing that or learning that or like that being their first message of how they're supposed to view themselves and then not being able to like lose that or like even the young like I luckily I I had a pretty good relationship with my body growing up I got very lucky with that but I collected like I had Elle and Cosmo and all of the magazines I don't even know why I loved magazines. I just loved magazines growing up. And like, that's all it was. You know what I mean? Was like how to be attractive and how to lose weight really fast. Maybe a lip gloss tutorial. Like if you got lucky that month, right? Like that's all it was. Like, and that, that's what you're taught. Like that's what you absorb that. And then your relationship of your parents and how they treat and talk about that as well. Yeah. And that, and yeah, so I always like, and I always like, I think the beautiful thing about research is you can have like lots of different lenses and shades of looking mm-hmm. at the world. And my like lens happens to be through family and race and ethnicity. Yeah. Which not to say it's like the best frame or the only frame. There's lots of frames, but that's always where I'm going to approach those questions from. But like, yeah, like, I mean, my parents tended to have pretty positive, but there was always this like, and not necessarily just through your parents. If you think like cousins, grandparents, yeah. all of that, like, right. We did. And this was like very indicative of the time of growing up, like in the early late nineties, early two thousands of like associating health with thinness. Yeah. Like I remember my brother at like, you know, in third grade was a little overweight because Mm -hmm. he was in third grade. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Like it's so funny now because he's just like, just super skinny. But the doctor was like, okay, well, like he's overweight, you know, there's an obesity epidemic. You need to like make sure he loses weight. And right. And there was no like, okay, like his blood pressure is great, his heart rate is great, like all of those kinds of things. Like and it had to be this family conversation of like, okay, like what can we do to be healthier? How do we address this? Um, yeah. when really like it didn't need like you grew out of it. And yeah, like, no, my brother went through the same phase. And I was the mean older sister and looking, I knew I mean 
I knew nothing about shame and like fat phobia yeah. and all that stuff when I'm a, I was like 13 and he was like 10 or 11. But I used to grill him so bad because he had his little chubby wrestler stage and like give him so much shit and he grew out of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now my brother has more abs than I can count. And I'm like, cool, Jake. Like you actually like you got you got the genetic lottery here and I gave you all that shit for all those years. You know what I mean? But like we didn't know. But luckily though, like my parents were the parents who were like, no, he's fine. Let it go. You know what I mean? Like they they were like, he's not, he's not fat, he's not chubby, he's fine, he's a kid, let it go. So luckily they he had that yeah. approach coming for him versus, you know, me and the big mean older sister completely ridiculing him and having no idea. Right. Yeah. And that's like the power of family. It can either be really valuable in dismantling these problematic ideas, but it can also be problematic in cementing these ideas. Mm-hmm. And like how you negotiate that. So like when I think of health and well-being, I do think like our messages about what even health means. Yeah. From our family. And that can be reinforced by external forces, right? I always, my, like, you know, everyone talks about like society does this. And I was trying to push back with my students, like label society, right? It yeah. doesn't give us use if we make this invisible force that no one can touch. Like, was it from magazines? Was it from TV shows? Was it from social media? Was it from your parents? Was it from news? Like, think about where those messages come from. Yeah. I think that's probably really helpful. I don't know. I'm not a psychology expert, but I'm sure that's really helpful for getting people to also work through the messages that they got, who it was coming from Mm -hmm. and whether it was even valuable information that you were getting at the time. I mean, luckily again, I didn't have a ton of issues with like body image, but my message from family and peers and teachers growing up was that I was too loud. You know what I mean? And I talked too much and that was bad. And I was going to get in trouble and make bad life choices because I was loud. Like I was just, I was just eccentric. Like, you know what I mean? I was like, truly as a kid, I didn't make bad choices, but they associated that constantly with bad and negative until I took that on. Then once I got old enough, I was like, well, who were these people that were saying this and where was this coming from? And why did they believe this? And I don't believe that to be true anymore. You know what I mean? Like I was able to work through that. But I'm sure I like that reframing of like society and it's like, okay, well, who is that and why are they saying that? And obviously there's probably more layers and complexity to that that people have to work through with their own like mental well-being and psychology. Um, But I'm sure it helps people be like, oh, wait, this isn't some universal truth. This is just some message I got from some random source that isn't completely meaningless, right? Like it really like someone made up this arbitrary rule that I've been following and living my entire life off of. Like where do they get that? And even if like – I don't know if this is in the research or whatever, but I, I'm sure that even like in fi- family dynamics, like your parents just blindly accept some of these truths to be too true and put them on you. And you don't, they don't even know why either. They're just like, well, this is how things are, right? Like you, I feel oh, yeah. like you always hear that from people like, well, this is how things are. And it's like, well, why are they that way? Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. It's not funny. Maybe sad, maybe funny. We'll see. But it's like parenting like there are guidebooks now but there's no like guidebook for the way in which your implicit messages are going to come across Mm -hmm. but they do and I think a lot of the research too especially it's it's interesting so I study a lot of like racial ethnic socialization and those are like refer to like the implicit and the explicit ways we learn what race and ethnicity means through your community neighbors friends family and typically those messages first come from media and family and we know um like for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, those messages tend to be much more explicit. Yeah. And be like, let's talk about it. And for white youth, especially, they're often implicit. Mm-hmm. Like their parents won't say anything, but they will pick up on mannerisms. Yeah. They will pick up on, oh, we don't go to that area because it's a bad area, and I'm only seeing Hispanic people there. So now I'm going to associate mm-hmm. Hispanic people with this. Um, there's like my favorite experiment of all time 
is they had moms come in and fill out like, okay, like how do you think your student would or your child would have a problem with having a black teacher or a black neighbor? Like how often do you talk about these things? And there was parents of three-year-olds and they're like, no, my little baby angel is perfect. They would never have an ounce of like racial bias. They're three. How can they? Mm-hmm. They have them do this activity. And afterwards, you know, they ask the kids like, okay, like how comfortable would you be having a black babysitter? And they were like super uncomfortable. No. And the only thing that caused them to be more comfortable was how diverse their um, parents' friend group was. Interesting. And the research. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like, yeah. Kids will pick up. Kids can differentiate skin tone by about one year old. So this is kind of pivoting and I don't know if you can answer this or not, but do you have any advice for people who are parents on how to like maybe expose their kids to this earlier? Especially like say like they do grow up in a community like where I grew up where really it was very rural Pennsylvania. It was a largely white town. I mean, we had some like, you know, Asian and black students in my high school, but not a a large percent. That's just like the area that I'm in. So like, um, do you have any advice for people who are like, you know, parenting their children and how to like maybe make this dynamic in a way that promotes health and well-being and like reduces these biases within children or anything. I don't know how much your work touches on that, but yeah. So, so many suggestions. I, I'm a yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> um, the other really important thing um, that I'm going to note is that especially for non-white individuals having mm-hmm. a positive relationship with your ethnic or racial identity positively predicts your well-being yeah so people who have a good relationship have lower mental health symptoms higher self-esteem i can't remember the other one and they've actually done a few meta-analyses that show the more you talk to your children about ethnicity and race especially for non-white children they have better they do better in school they have better academic outcomes yeah they have higher self-esteem they like you know like so it is like inherently our ideas of ethnic racial identity are tied to well-being yeah so i always say for like white parents even if you aren't in a diverse area is -hmm. first of all like i think people get hung up on having one big conversation yeah and like we're gonna sit down we're gonna talk about it and then never talk about it again and what's much more important is the frequency of those conversations Mm -hmm. it's having like small conversations throughout your life or throughout the Mm -hmm. children's life yeah and especially the big thing I say is like, you know, children will say stuff and note stuff. And mm-hmm. if your child is, and I'll give my, the example of me, when I was five, five or six, maybe younger, um, my mom and I were in Mervyn's, which if you're out from the West Coast, it's like just a generic box store. That's mm-hmm. not important. I'm not going to get on the history of Mervyn's. <laughs> we were at Mervyn's and my mom picked something up. And I was like, oh, mom, are you going to pay for that? I was like, of course I'm going to pay for it. Why wouldn't I pay for it? And I, someone who is black, said, I heard black people steal things. Right? So when you have kids do those things, you can't panic and shush them and be like, oh, my God, no. Because you're telling them then noticing race and noticing difference is bad. Yeah. ashamed of it. Rather than being like, hey, like, where did you hear that from? Let's talk it through. I think my mom like kind of talked me through it a little bit and like it was something I'd heard in preschool from someone. But when those kind of sticky gross moments mm-hmm. come up, it's really important not to instantly go to like shaming your child for bringing them up because they really don't know better. They don't know any better. They don't know what yeah. they're asking. They're just curious, right? Yeah, exactly. So 
when those things come up rather than being like, oh my gosh, don't talk about it. I'm so sorry he would ever do that. Be like, okay, like, you know, yeah, people have different skin tones, right? And obviously that example is would be a lot more unpacking. But even if you have a child who just is like, hey, there's a lot of black people here. Or, hey, why does that person have a different skin color than me? Yeah. Like, just talking about it and opening up that dialogue is really important. And the way you react shows a lot about how they should react. Mm-hmm. And that's really an open door. Um, it's also, again, like now that we're in such a cool time where you have so many resources available, it's easier to have like books that are really diverse. Yeah. And just having those around and like listening to music or even just taking your kids to like Chinese New Year festivals and those kinds of things. And if you are isolated, look for other opportunities, primarily probably through books and media and television shows to show your child different possibilities. And having yeah. those conversations and having them early on and creating a dialogue where they feel comfortable going to you first. Mm-hmm. No, I, I feel like that's so important because I feel like so many people now, like when they kind of were forced to have that dialogue this last year, mm-hmm. a lot of people got really defensive and shut down because they like probably never had a healthy, normal dialogue around these, these topics like race and diversity and what that means and what that looks like, especially within health and wellness, because they just, they didn't have to address it. Maybe that's just a product of like how they were raised and how their parents addressed it. And you never think about these multi-layers of these things of where they're coming from. And like, at least now there is like, I mean, especially for some of my kids, my friends who have kids, like, yeah, they have all the books and all the shows and all the movies that like are now really making a point to have that diversity Mm -hmm. as a part of children's learning rather than just I mean, I don't know. I had like turtles growing up. So I don't, <laughs> we had like Franklin and, and stuff. So I don't know yeah. how, and oh, little bear. So we just had animals. I feel like when I was a kid and dogs, like blues clues. Um, that's the other big thing the research shows is like, you know, like I think some parents, especially like, I remember all those growing up and being like, you know, like we're going to teach children how not to be racist because the turtle is going to be nice to the leopard or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. And the research shows like, especially young kids can't extrapolate that much. No. So there's this other research that showed, you know, they were like, okay, we're going to show a kindergarten class, like an episode of Clifford, the big red dog, where Clifford meets a three-legged dog and he thinks he's weird at first and then learns how to be friends with the dog. Right. And the takeaway message for the kids is supposed to be like, you know, be nice to everyone, regardless of like their ability. And all the kindergartners were like, they were like, Hey, what'd you get from it? They're like, be nice to three-legged dogs. Yeah. And that's that's like, that's so looking at like, you know, kids often aren't going to be able to extrapolate bigger messages from like small, like books and media. Yeah. Cause I think that's funny. I haven't reflected on that, but most of the stuff that I watched growing up was cartoon animals. Yeah. That was the large characters growing up. Right. Like, or some sort of cartoon that wasn't even like a person person, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like that's, so that's so interesting. Cause yeah, I don't, I mean, I was a smart kid and I don't think I was even extrapolating those types of things. I mean, if you can put a hit into messages in cartoons that like only adults pick up on, like, I feel like, yeah, yeah, like you need to be more direct with children on the message that you're trying to send them. I just like love those experiments and studies. Just be nice to three-legged dogs. That's it. We're done. That's hilarious. Kids, I feel like if we could just completely talk to children about these topics and have them talk back to us. Like maybe then we can all communicate oh around difficult life topics way better for all things. Cause children are so pure in their interpretation of everything. Right. Yeah. Like oh, be nice to three legged dogs is the most pure thing I've ever like heard. It's funny. I, uh, um, 
so I taught or I coached like girls on the run, which is like this girls empowerment yeah. thing. Um, when I was in Lincoln and I mentioned something like, well, at the time now she's my like fiance, or I guess when this comes out, we might be married because we get married next month. Um, but I said something about having a girlfriend. Yeah. And this girl comes up. She's like, I'm sorry, what? And I was like a girlfriend. And she was like, okay. And she like walked away and she's like, did a 360. She's like, I'm confused. <laughs> like girlfriend. And I was like, yes. And she was like, is this a teenage girl? No, she was like third grade. Oh, oh, so even younger. Okay. And she looks at me, she's like, okay, so you're gay. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I'm not going to get into the complex. Like, yes, essentially. Yes. 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 Like, okay, cool. And I'm like, oh, I like loved it. It was just like such a funny moment of like, all she needed was like confirmation. And then she was like, fine. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I'm, I got it. That's so funny. Cause her brain was firing. She might've never met someone who was in know, like a safe yeah. sex relationship. So she probably like heard about it and she was probably so confused, but isn't it, it's funny when you're like, okay, cool. All right. Yeah. That's all. And moves on with their life. No, that's hilarious. And I love that. And I also love that you work with girls on the run. Cause I care a lot about girls on the run. I work with them with fundraising for them with Frey and stuff like that. So that's a great oh, yeah. organization. Oh, my Shameless God. plug for anyone who's trying to get involved with their community and get women and girls in sports and yeah. access to that. Girls on the run is great. Um, would recommend. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was going to next ask you if you could address ideas, how ethnicity and rape, race shape our perception of health and wellness and how we can create more inclusive spaces for others, especially in families. I know you kind of already touched on this a little bit, but like, can you kind of maybe like summarize everything we just talked about and how like health and wellness is shaped by these things and how like in families we can work to making that more inclusive to promoting health, I guess health promoting behaviors for all Mm -hmm. like people. So it's not just again, like white wellness for everybody Mm -hmm. that one, that one size doesn't fit all approach. Yeah, so part of when we talk about like getting people right, and I'll, I'm going to use myself as an example, like a lot mm-hmm. of times, I don't want to be like, oh, my participant said this one time, or like, yes. I don't know, it's easier. So these might be like, it sounds like I'm talking a lot about myself. I'm just trying to like not. This is the same thing I do with teaching because yeah. if I criticize or make fun of myself, it hurts no students' feelings. Um. So <laughs> exactly, perfect. So when we think about like health and wellness and who has access to these spaces, you know, like everyone again wants to jump on like, well, it's just socioeconomics. Well, it's just this, which is like, no, it's not true. And that's missing a lot of complexity. Mm-hmm. But we also have to think about who we see in those spaces mm-hmm. and who's represented um, and how that might work, like, you know, way on that person. So for example, like I started doing CrossFit probably like a little bit pre my master's took a break, came back to it and PhD because I needed friends who were not academics. And I felt very like supported in my CrossFit gym, but they were still like, like even going in, I'm like, okay, there's a lot of white people. Again, not saying white people are bad. I'm like, what if they ask me a bunch of questions about like where I'm from? Cause I always get that like, Oh, you look exotic. Where are you from? And I'm like, California it's here. Like, yeah. You know, or I'm like, okay, if they have like a Bible verse on the wall, does this mean like they want to be inclusive of everyone or I have to like observe these set of ideals? Are people going to be like, when political stuff comes up, are they going to say like thinly veiled things? And I ended up like doing a great, going to a great gym that I like, felt really good about. And there were a few members who later left who would say, like, not directly to me, but if I was in the same area, would say, like, problematic things and make fun of things that were important to me. Mm-hmm. So if I look at a space and I'm like, I have to overcome these barriers to be the first 
X, Y, or Z person in this space. That's a lot of pressure to put on someone mm-hmm. and to feel uncomfortable going in that space. So then if you couple that with the way we market things like, okay, right? Like lacrosse. Yeah. I love lacrosse. Favorite sport. Big fan. It is a very white sport. Yes. Yes. And, you know, I, I always stuck out doing that sport and I felt like it, but also like people would say small comments to me or about other people. Cause I think people don't typically read me as black. They're like, Oh, you're ambiguously brown in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, which also gives me a sense of privilege that other people don't. But I remember this girl on the team made fun of another girl who was black and made like a crack about like fried chicken. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. I don't know how to address that. I don't know what to say to that. So all of a sudden, not only do I not see other people who look like me in the space, I might feel threatened in that space. And that might, if I don't have a lot of exposure, like turn me off of lacrosse as a sport or a place I can be mm-hmm. in general. And I think so when we think about like including people and making, and I know this is something like CrossFit kind of had to reckon with a lot this summer. Yeah. <laughs> This is like literally like CrossFit was my coping mechanism. And I'm like, okay, there's like protests and everything exploding. I'm just going to focus on CrossFit and like re-listen to Harry Potter and like. And then CrossFit really <laughs> fucked that one up. And then <laughs> I just say it as it is. And I was like, this is the worst. Like, and then JK Rowling was like, I'm the worst. And I'm like, oh my God, can I get one week break? Can I have one <laughs> thing? Yeah, no, I think I think a lot of people felt that way about a lot of things they loved this past mm-hmm. year, and that was hard because you're like, I just felt like I was like, Mike, I was like, do I have to have another conversation with another person? Like, can you guys yeah. just like not be awful? Like, just not, just even like, like just the way people were saying things when they were exposing their awfulness. I was like, you could have just even said this like put it through one filter and made it like come out. But I was like, that's just who you are. I guess you're just showing us who you are, but it did keep happening with a lot of stuff. Yeah. this year. And you're just looking at people and you're like, can I have one thing? I'm not a Harry Potter stand, but I knew that a lot of people were like, can yeah. we just cancel her and keep the books? <laughs> like, Yeah. I lit- I've done so much identity work around Harry Potter because I like, didn't have friends in elementary school. So I would just like go to the library and read Harry Potter by myself. And like have incorporated it, have it like have a Harry Potter tattoo. I'm all invested. And I'm like, oh God, how do I unwork this from my like 27 years of identity? I have attached to this. Yeah. Yeah. So I know CrossFit reckoned with it. A lot of spaces do when we think of, we have this um, way of tying bodies to certain spaces. Mm -hmm. So like you probably heard like runners are supposed to look like this, Right. Everyone's like, oh, runners are super skinny and super thin. And that's what you should look like if you're a runner. Mm-hmm. And if I don't look like that, or if I don't feel like my body fits in that, I'm not going to do that activity that I might really love and enjoy. Yeah. And again, like that's a huge conversation um, people have about like the outdoor spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? There's a ton of really good groups. And it's just, I'll try to remember to link them all in the show notes. I follow a lot of pages that are trying to get, um, more diversity in outdoors because that's another one that it's thin white people. That's it. Like that's all you get out there. Oh, I will sometimes if I like I learned to ski in Montana. Like absolutely love it. I've always loved hiking. I love being outdoors. I like love mm-hmm. camping. But I it wasn't until I came here to Georgia really like I could like would tally the amount of other people of color I would see outdoors. Mm-hmm. I'd be like one or like none. 
Yeah. Again, because like that might not feel like a space or the like bar to access is so high mm-hmm. that you do have the money, right? Like I hate like gearheads who are like, this is the best gear to like be in this space. And if you're not doing X, Y, or Z or have this, like you're not doing it right. And I can have plenty of money to do those things. But I'm like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to like burden myself with this thing where I'm not, like not going to fit. Mm-hmm. Like, no. I, like, no. And like, that is another barrier that we are turning people off. And again, just by associating bodies and body types mm-hmm. with certain spaces that are going to like initially people feel like. Excluded. Well, and fundamentally it comes back and it harms health. Cause all these people are like, well, we care about people being outdoors and we care about people's health and we want people to be healthy. I'm like, but if you did, then you would be more accepting and inclusive of all these people in this space. Like, that's the thing that I'm like, you guys are all just kind of being a little bit hypocritical. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but that's something that I try really hard within my brand to like express to people. I'm like, you can be out here. You deserve to be out here. You don't have to be like, you don't have to already be fit or knowledgeable or have all the perfect gear or the, the right, like, you know, skin color or ethnicity or race or like gender or whatever it is to enjoy these things. Like they are for everyone. But unfortunately there are those people at the top that are either only representing one type of person or, like the people who want to like take that barrier so much higher. It's just like a big ego thing. I think it's like, yeah. Or even like when I would like, like one of my plans now that I'm here is to start like section hiking the Appalachian trail. Mm-hmm. And if you look at who is through hiking, like the AT or even the PCT, right. There's a lot of people who are like, I didn't want to fit into society's mold. So I just like broke everything and like went backpacking for three months. And I'm like, I can't relate to you because all I've seen my family do is work. Mm-hmm. Like my grandma, both my grandmas, like they were like the hardest workers. Mm-hmm. And like grandma Elizabeth would tell me stories about like, you know, like she would get chased out of buildings because she was black. She would like not have access to certain jobs, like all those things. So she like worked so hard to get to a place of financial stability. And like, so did my mom. And like this idea that like, I could skate off and not work hard or not contribute for three months mm-hmm. because society tells me to do one thing. I'm like, well, no, society is telling you as a person in your body, what to do is going to tell me something different mm-hmm. and I'm going to be read it differently. Yeah. And even when we talk about like a lot of people have like safety concerns outdoors, like yeah. one, I'm a woman, so that's magnified, but two, I can only imagine how for, especially like in the South. So I don't know if you know who Scott Jarek is a elite ultra runner, and he's a white male and he set the record for the AT. He like ran the AT in like 46 days or something a few years ago. I think someone broke it since, but his wife's this like tiny little Asian woman, um, Jenny. And I listened to a podcast where they interviewed both of them. And she talked about even when she was crewing him and like, it, it was funny because she was talking about like Georgia and how there's like to get to the gaps in Georgia, you have to go through. And I know this all too well. Yeah. You have to go through all these really janky, like mountain, rural places and she said she felt so unsafe being an Asian woman in these places. So I was like, yeah, like safety is a major concern, but one for women, yes, it's worse. But two, then if you add people of different race and ethnicity, like then it's even more because like heaven forbid you're out on the trail and yeah, there's a bunch of people out there, but what if they, you know what I mean? Like they don't want you out there. Like that adds that extra layer of complexity of like, like, I mean, it's for the most part, it's pretty safe out there, but also Mm -hmm. It isn't, you know what I mean? At different points in time, like a bear is not going to attack you regardless of who you are, you are, what you look like. But you know, if there's violence on the trail or facing discrimination on the trail, like that ruins the whole getting away 
kind of thing for so many people. And I think that's not talked about enough in the outdoor mm-hmm. spaces on like what that means um, for one comfort and confidence, but also even safety when it comes to being on the trail. But again, yeah, that goes back to like, we are denying people like health things that can be free. Like hiking is free. You, you do need a car. Yes. And as someone who did not have a car for their entire master's program, that is definitely a barrier. Um, but like living in Montana, like I could walk or bike to hiking trails, mm-hmm. right? Like hiking is like a low cost, typically activity where you don't need to have a lot of gear. And there's been so much research that shows like when you take people, especially people who've like lived in cities for most of their life and take them like outdoors for a mm-hmm. weekend, like how much better they sleep and how much better they feel. And like, I recognize, like, I know, like for me personally, like I sleep way better on a tent without even an air mattress or like anything Yeah, outdoors than I do in my own bed. No, I even know that even though training for ultra marathons is so hard and so time consuming as a whole, mentally and physically, I feel better in my life when I have those multiple hours on trail on the weekends right now I can't afford to have multiple hours on trails on the weekends, but like I even recognize taking the trips I do is a massive privilege that many people don't get to have and take. And like, that's, you know, but you, we, there's a, it will be out before this season two, Bethany uh, Taylor and I, and my friend that I went to Zion with, we talk about micro and macro adventures for those who are interested in getting outdoors and how like not everything has to be this big epic thing. You can can't, can go locally. You can like camp in your own backyard. Like there's ways to get outside and enjoy nature that aren't like these huge barrier to entry things. So go back again. I'm going to reference another podcast episode and talk about that. Cause that's something that we're really big about getting women outdoors mm-hmm. in general. Like that's our niche. And like, that's a big thing is so people are, they're scared. They don't know how to do it or they don't have the resources and you don't have to start with these big epic things. Like you can start mm-hmm. with these small, like micro things that are just as awesome and will benefit your health. I think there's even like, you can sit outside in like a park and a lot of areas yeah. don't have park access, which is another huge issue with this. There's a lot of like, I can Leslie nope this so hard. That is a huge thing. Like I think if people are like, I think someone asked me once what I would do to like if I could have one thing changed that promoted health and well-being. And I literally think I put like a Leslie note me and I was like, more parks. Yeah. Like I would make more parks and more places oh, that yeah. were safe. Like that, I think that would be like, I think that would benefit America across the board. I know we have a lot of parks, but I think like park and walking access would be like oh the thing for so many people because it combines all of these things in one. Because um, as much as I love the gym guys, just lifting iron in a dark room probably isn't the same as getting outside in the sunshine and fresh air. Um, no, definitely. Like it's like, I, and I love like, I'm just a total gym rat. And like, I love lifting and being in that space, but I'm also like, people can be terrible in those spaces. Yeah, um, no, it's, it's very real. And I think a lot of us face that in the fitness industry this year as a whole. I mean, again, a lot of people got it wrong. You know what I mean? And a lot of people are still learning and like, I think they're doing a really good job of recognizing it and handling, you know, that reality that they maybe weren't aware of that other people are experiencing up until last year, which, um, you know, it's sad that people aren't able to have those conversations maybe with their family or when they're younger Mm -hmm. or talk about these things. But I, I, I hope and think it's getting slowly better. I, I can't really speak to CrossFit because I just go to the open gym at my gym and everyone's great, but I don't really actually like train, train. And I've never really been in any other CrossFit box. A lot of people ask me about that. And I was like, honestly, I just don't think I'm the expert to talk about these things. Cause I'm not really in these spaces as a CrossFit junkie. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I'm like, so I don't know what to say, but I was like, I'm glad they changed leadership and hopefully they're making things better. You know what I mean? But yeah. I had a lot of really great people speak up about that and share their experience with that as well, because it's like, it's not just one person. Like it's yeah. Many people experiencing this. So, okay. So we're, we're closing in on an hour here. So I think the last thing 
I'm going to do is you had a great list of topics and myths that you wanted to address, kind of myth busting with Dr. Mack. We'll call that at the end here. Oh my God. Um, I love that. You should do that as a teacher. You should do that in your classes. You should do that with your students. Myth, bust- oh myth busting with Dr. Mack. I actually really like that. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I love it. Okay. So we talked about this already, but um, why does ethnicity and race, especially in health and wellness matter? Okay. It matters um, because racism impacts people at a cellular level such that people who face more racism, even if it's accidental, even if it's microaggressions, are going to have worse health health outcomes because you're literally like tearing at your at their skin or technically you're degrading their telomeres. That's what the research has shown. Wow. And, yeah. And that literally shortens lifespan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we know that like on a cellular level, black women, for instance, age like two and a half times more quickly than white women. Mm-hmm. mostly due to the racism they face. So it matters in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, it matters in terms of mental and um, mental health and mental well-being because we know when people have a positive identity, like positive relationship with their ethnic racial identity, their well-being is better. Yeah, and I love that you addressed people's relationship with their identity because a lot of people I don't think about it like that and how hard it would be to not have an not have a relationship with your own identity. I mean, I know a lot of people struggle with that and that's really hard. Oh, yeah. It's like pre- being hard, perpetually right? 13. Oh, my God. No, never. No. I could not. I could not. Um, but, and, you know, we want people to feel empowered and we want people to feel good. And the better people feel, the better things they put out into the world. Yeah. So on that note, your next one is, isn't the world super inclusive now? <gasps> um, no. So actually, um there's this term we use in critical race theory called interest convergence. And it's this idea that sometimes we typically will not change laws until we see, until people see how it benefits everyone, mm-hmm. not just the people being oppressed. Um, so yes, we have, we know that like the changing demographics of the United States are like showing that, you know, all of these kind of like misleading headlines about us being a minority majority country, which is really accurate. But while we do have higher representation of different races and ethnicities, if you look at schools and neighborhoods, we are more segregated now than we were in the 60s. Okay, interesting. Yeah, we have higher yeah. rates of segregation because, um, for example, when Brown versus Board of Education, which officially outlawed, um, basically you couldn't have separate but equal anymore because mm-hmm. it never was separate but equal. Um there was a bunch of laws and cutbacks that were changed to allow essentially people who were uncomfortable with their children mis- like mixing with black children, especially in the South, to relocate. Okay, and that's now carried into probably where people live today. Yeah, more segregated now. And there's some left. weird stat about how many people actually end up living within like so many miles of their hometown or something like that. I don't know what it is, but it's a high percentage of people really. Oh, yeah, I tell my students, like, your marriage and life is much more arranged than you think it is, right? Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily your parents choosing it, but you're more most likely going to marry someone from a similar place of, a, of the same ethnicity and race, typically, of a similar job. Of You know, you have all these factors, so you have a lot of things, such as zip codes, determining your life mm-hmm. in ways you don't yeah. think of. So, like, even though we have maybe more visibility than we did and there are definitely have been huge advances. Mm-hmm. Um, we do have really high rates of segregation still. And I think like 
like Georgia, I, I always say is the most diverse but segregated state I've ever lived in. I mean, I've recognized that a lot living in Athens even. Oh, yeah. No offense to Athens. Actually, all the offense to Athens. I don't know. I feel like I'm not allowed to talk smack on Athens on here, but I'm going to do it. <laughs> but, uh, like, you no. see that a lot. Oh, you see it even, like, um, uh, my partner and I, like, bought a house. And, and, like, one important thing to me is I noticed there's a lot of, like, flight or even, like, essentially what people call white flight to Oconee County. We see, like, a lot of professors and faculty and people with, like, better, quote-unquote, jobs going to Oconee County. Mm-hmm. And then Athens does have a, like a really high poverty rate. So even when we were choosing, I was like, it's really important to me to stay in Athens because I want to stay in the county yeah. that I'm working in and I want to invest in this community I'm in. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do like know other people who are told like, oh, you need to go to Oconee County because the schools are better. Yeah. And it's not even that they're better. It's just you, since you have more of an income disparity, I think part of it is that you have a larger like income disparity in Athens. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like people are more low income and they're they're not gonna, we're not going to have the same scores on standardized testing. But again, that's looking at the average, not like the measure of dispersion. Mm-hmm. So even if the average is low, or you have some kids doing like poorly, but you also might have a lot of kids doing well, really well, yeah. But you frame it that way, like. Or so I know people who like moved to Oconee County because they were like, oh, like you have to do it for the schools, and they're like, oh no, like this is very segregated. Um, this is very, like, I know someone who said, like, someone's kids came back with really problematic anti-LGBT attitudes. Mm-hmm. Or I know one person who was like, I, we had to move back to Clark County because I could not have my daughter being, like, the only Black girl in her class. Yeah. But, you know, I, you see that, that coded language about, like, oh, well, the schools are better. Yeah. So you have to, like, do that disparity. Well, it's an, and it's a very safe way to say what you're, I guess, inadvertently doing. And I never think about that because I'm not anywhere close to having children. But that school conversation is th- something that really is very real, like, yeah. for a lot of people. And whether it's ill-intended or well-intended, I mean, that's a big thing that I think a lot of people – and I like how you framed it where, like, it's the spectrum, not the mean. Um, so I guess building on that – you had, uh, what does whiteness or ideas about whiteness mean for health and wellness? And isn't that just reverse racism when we think about that? Um, spoiler, no. <laughs> I didn't want to give away your, I didn't want to give away your spoiler alert. Uh, when we, when we, again, when we talk about whiteness, that's not talking about like, oh, we need less white people in this space. Mm-hmm. It's recognizing that we have a very strong um, Eurocentric bias and standard mm-hmm. of health and well-being and image that is connected to a certain idea of white body. So this idea that like you should be blonde and skinny and have blonde hair and a smaller nose, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like those are ideas of health and wellness that aren't healthy A for anyone. Like if let's say we got rid of those standards, like everyone would feel better. Yeah. And if we change the focus away from, oh, you need to look a certain way to you need should feel a certain way, mm-hmm. right? Again, those are like simple things that would create a more inclusive world if we focus on like exercise to like feel good mm-hmm. that are going to take that whiteness out of wellness, essentially. So when we talk about race and ethnicity being centered to our ideas of health and wellness, it's not just that certain groups are have higher rates of cardiovascular disease and they might have higher rates of obesity. It's like, what are our standards and what are we holding people up to? And mm-hmm. often we don't recognize And like, again, I had to do this really gross, long internal work with my body image 
Uh, I literally remember like I would always just look at like my like I have big old like thick thunder thighs I love them they're great they can like Mm -hmm. run and lift heavy stuff but I would just I hated them growing up yeah because they were like these really skinny and I remember always comparing myself to other people and again on reflection I'm like oh my gosh I was only comparing myself to like like a white popular girl yeah and every high school has the same one they you know (laughs) what I mean like they all I know exactly like and that's that's very real um so on that then there's this assumption that pe- like BIPOC people don't work out because they're poor or socioeconomic status impacts that. And I think we all know that that kind of almost assumes everyone who's BIPOC is impoverished by default. Yes. I feel like that thought probably hurts people too as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you speak to that myth that you had listed out? Yeah. So again, like every, which I don't recommend getting in Facebook arguments or internet arguments, but you see every argument devolve into like, oh, that's just because the like people tend to be poor and therefore they can't afford it, which first of all, people spend out of their means all the time. Like I know plenty of people who like make certain sacrifices so they can go to the gym. Mm -hmm. I know certain people who've made sacrifices so they could go to CrossFit. Yeah. First of all. So like this idea that like BIPOC people are just like too poor and we're like, Oh, we just can't afford it. And while that can be a very real barrier to entry, but it's not the only like barrier to entry, mm-hmm. right? We know tons of people who will make those sacrifices to go to gyms, to get involved in well- wellness. That also ignores the fact that there are lots of ways to be healthy and to have a good relationship with your body that don't have to do with going to a gym, like walking, moving, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. Actually, I'll do a little note. There is a great nonprofit called Girl Treks, which is all about getting black women out and walking and creating communities where you can love it would support it um but again that it ignores that like oh the only way to get fit and healthy is just to go to the gym and if you're not going to the gym you're not help well right and again that's this very prominent idea second statistics can be skewed and my big thing whenever i teach like statistics like There is like the measure of central tendency. So there might be a mean, there might be an average, but you also have to look at the measures of dispersion, Mm -hmm. deviations, z scores, et cetera. So a statistic might be here, but that doesn't mean there's tons of people on the other side who can't afford it and choose not to. Mm -hmm. Right. And there's plenty of people who can make those, who can afford those um, access to those places who choose not to because they don't feel welcome there. Yeah, I think that's a huge thing. I think it was, uh, I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but is it Erica Ann, Ann Weichel? I don't, mm-hmm. I've not actually heard her name out loud, so I don't know how to phonetically say it. And as we all know, Alyssa is phonetically challenged. You don't need to correct me. Everyone on Instagram knows. I correct my spelling all the time. Um, but she did a video when all that stuff with CrossFit was coming out, because that was everyone's argument was like, well, CrossFit is expensive. That's why people aren't doing it. And she was like, there's a ton, there's a large middle class like black population in our country who are just choosing to not spend their money. Like it's like, there's a large population of people who like could spend their money on those things and they're spending it elsewhere. Like that isn't the only argument that you can have against those things. And she had an IGTV about that, um, that I thought captured that really well because she, you know, she talked about her experience in CrossFit as a black athlete because she's probably one of the few female black athletes that have competed in CrossFit. And so I thought that was a really good note because everyone, that was everyone's kind of cop-out argument on Facebook and Instagram and all those things. And you saw yeah. that all after, like, well, I can't afford it. And I'm like, 
Well, there are people that can't afford, like you learn that when you run a business, you're like, okay, people spend, you're, you're not bad for asking people to spend money. They're choosing what they're spending money on, but you have to make sure that you're giving them what they want out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I mean, that's sales, that's business, right? Like that's how, that's how it works. And people spend their money all the time. So awesome. I was a grad student who went to CrossFit. Like, yeah, my best friend here, she goes to CrossFit and she, fa- her dad's a CPA and he yells at her all the time. And she's like, no, this, I have to factor this in. Yeah. She's like, I have, he does her, helps her with her budget and stuff like that. And he's like, you know, you would save so much more money. And she's like, no, I have to go to CrossFit. Yeah, like that's the only thing I have. Like as a grad student, yeah. that, my gym is all I have. <laughs> that, that's it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about these things. I think that this is a conversation that, you know, one of the things that when we started our podcast, we wanted to be having these quote unquote messy metal conversations that aren't yeah. being had in the fitness industry. So I really appreciate you reaching out to me and giving me your time to talk about these things. I mean, you're a professor, so you're even busier than me. So I greatly appreciate this. And I hope if you guys listen to this podcast, you found it beneficial, let us know. I really hope that you learned something new today and you were able to take something from this. Tag me, let me know if you gain anything from it. I can forward it along to Mackenzie when we when it's finally out. And so thank you so much for joining us today. If you guys enjoy this episode, we will be back next week with more fun. In the meantime, rate, review, subscribe, download. It helps so much. Um, until the next time, live well, demand better, and stay messy. Thank you so much, Dr. Mac. We appreciate you having me on. Thank you.